You know, the holidays are a time of great anticipation for many. Um, it builds up and builds up, you know, and uh, people get their excitement up. It's, it's a time to share joyfully with family, with friends, with loved ones. Unfortunately for many other people, the holidays are not the most wonderful time of the year. They're not. They're a time of sorrow and sadness. They're, they are actually, for many people, a painful reminder of bad relationships and uh, past hurts. For them, the holidays do have a dark side. Um, they get together and there are those cold gestures because of wrongs that were never righted. Uh, phony displays of kindness or friendship that everyone knows is just not true. And though many of you may feel that way and, and many people feel their, their particular hurts and their particular situation is unique, the truth is that we all, we all get hurt. Would you agree? I mean, no one is exempt from hurt. Um, we are forgiven uh, for our sins, and we uh, have many joys in the Christian life, but getting saved does not guarantee you're not going to get hurt. I mean, if you have ever sacrificed for somebody whom you love and have not seen Thanksgiving return to you, um, if you have ever served with all of your heart and your service went completely unappreciated, uh, if you have ever been judged unfairly by someone else, maybe that even happened this past year to you, um, you thought someone was your friend, but look how they, look what they said about you. How could they be a friend if they said that about you? Or they just treated you poorly, then you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You don't need any more illustrations. Hurtful experiences in life, if they are not dealt with properly in your own soul can disrupt your own joy, can make you not enjoy your own Christian life. It can drain your soul of energy and power. And so uh, in the midst of such kind of hurt, we uh, need to remind each other that the Lord is good. Yes, He allowed that to happen, but the Lord is good. Still, when we we think about the Lord's goodness, we wonder what's supposed to, what is the good thing that's supposed to come out of this, this injustice or this pain or this hurt? Well, I don't have all the answers, but I can say in God's infinite wisdom, the Lord has decreed not to reveal His secret and His sovereign will to us about everything. That's right. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to who? the Lord our God. It's the things that are revealed that belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. He gave us the law. He gave us Scripture to know His moral will, but His sovereign will, He's chosen not to tell us. He's decreed that. Why did He decree that? Well, I think in part because He wants us to learn to trust Him and not just His plan. It's one thing when you have a friend and you go to a friend, what's your plan? And they tell you the plan and you go, well, that sounds like a wise plan. That sounds like a good plan. I think I can trust you. But what happens when you're not told the plan? The person just says to you, just trust me. Now you find out, do I really trust this person or not? Well, that's what the Lord does for us. Just trust me, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on what? Your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. Yeah, but Lord, what are you going to do? What's, I'm not going to tell you everything. That brings out the need for more faith. Remember, the Bible is, is truth, but it's not just truth. Uh, the Bible is, is what God has decreed to reveal to His own people to deal with life and to 
perform the ministry he wants them to do. In other words, the Bible's not just inspired, it's not just infallible, it's not just inerrant. We have all of those things in our doctrinal statement. The Bible is sufficient to guide us into what God wants us to know and to do. It's powerful for that effect. But in his word, he has purposefully not answered all of our questions. The things revealed we must know, the things that he's revealed we must practice. It's in the bright light of the scriptures that God has revealed certain things to us, and he has revealed to us how to deal with our hurt. He hasn't told us all the time why he lets those particular hurts come to us. One of the things he's shown us in how we should deal with our hurt is it gives us an opportunity to overcome evil by doing good. It gives us an opportunity to overcome hurt by a display of uncommon and strange love. After all, isn't that what he did? He's overcoming the evil in the world by giving us his son, right? He displayed the greatest love. Greater love has no one this than one lay down his life for his friends. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He came into the world and he displayed a kind of love that Paul has to say, it's God's own kind of love. We don't know that kind of love down here. We have family love. We have self-love. We have this kind of love, but we didn't have that kind of love. But God comes and displays an uncommon kind of love. Well, we get that opportunity to show that kind of love only when we're hurt and we turn around and we love people. What is wrong with you, the unbeliever thinks, right? What crazy thing happened to you? He just insulted you. Don't you want me, your friend, to help you learn how to get back at him? No, I want to learn how to bless his life. Well, you are just, you are weird. Get away. Get away from me, is what an unbeliever thinks. It's a strange kind of love. They don't get it. So this morning, just for one Sunday, as the old year is passing and the new year is coming, the Lord impressed on me the desire to kind of look at uh, not the love that God displayed to us, we talk about that at Christmas time, so much as the love that God has, yes, He's displayed it to us, but now that love is to be entering into your life and then flowing from your life out to other lives, okay? That's the part that I want to look at today. And I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, just two verses. I consider this passage a soothing balm to help you to deal with uh, any hurt the correct way. Um, If I were to pass out index cards right now and I were to ask you to write down on the front the hurt that got to you the worst this year, I'm not talking about a trial like an, a sickness or something like that, but where someone hurt you the, the worst this past year, 2019, and you would write that down on the index card, and then I ask you to flip it over and on the backside, write down the second worst hurt that happened to you. In other words, the second worst thing that someone said to you or did to you this past year, what would it be? I want you thinking about those one or two things as we're going through this, this, uh, these verses, okay? I want you thinking about that hurt, how you dealt with it, and maybe how you should have dealt with it. Maybe you dealt with it fully the way the Lord wanted you to. You'll know if you did. Maybe you didn't. And, and maybe as we enter into the new year, you think about, okay, when 2020 comes, I don't know what's in store for me, but I do know somebody's going to hurt me somewhere. <laughs> I, tell, I tell all the new members, by the way, in the new members class, whenever I get an opportunity to teach them, I say, if you're waiting, if you left your last church because someone hurt you and you didn't like how they treated you, even if it was one of the leaders, and you're now entering our church and joining our church and you're waiting for someone to hurt you and then you're going to leave our church, you might as well not join because I guarantee somebody's going to hurt you in this church because we're not perfect. And I may hurt you. I may look at you with a funny face and you think I didn't like you or whatever, 
and uh, you just take from my facial expression something that I didn't mean. Someone else may do the same to you. Someone may promise that they'll do something for you and they forgot. These are imperfect people. If you wait around and say, I'm done with people when they hurt me, you know, I'll give, them, I'll give them an opportunity, maybe two strikes, but three strikes and they're out. Well, you'll never last in the body of Christ. You have to be able to overcome all of that. Anyways, it's in that spirit we come to these verses. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. Great verses to memorize if you're looking for a memory verse for the new year. All right, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind, it should say, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has what? Forgiven you. We're going to talk about that. Lying behind this brief passage is the assumption that hurt happens and that hurt has to be dealt with. Even to believers, even to people who are busy serving the Lord, got up, had a great quiet time, their heart was right, and they set out to be a blessing to the whole world. And then some nincompoop comes along their pathway and does something terrible to them. This happens. Hurt happens. Every one of us has hurt, okay? We know that. And here, Paul teaches that there's a right way and a wrong way to deal with wrongs done against you. There's a godly response, and there's a worldly response to the hurt that you feel from others. Now, because we're diving right into the middle of a book of the Bible, one passage here, right in the middle of of this letter, we need to understand the greater context or we're going to interpret it wrongly. Remember, anybody can be sloppy with God's words, and anybody can twist God's word, but it takes skill to get it right in its context. In the second half of chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul is setting a sharp contrast between the old life that we lived and its characteristics before we were in Christ. We call those the B.C. days, right, before Christ, and then the new life we have now by faith in Christ. Notice if you go back to verses 17 through 24, very importantly, uh, Paul is urging the believers there, first in verses 17 through 19, to lay off the old, unbelieving ways of living, the wrong way of thinking also. And then, notice in verses 20 through 24, he's urging us to practice the new life. You have a new life, but now you have to cooperate with that new life and practice it. There's a new, and also, by the way, a renewed way of thinking, an old way of living with an old way of thinking and a new way of living with a renewed mind. And then verse 24 particularly reminds believers that they're created anew. You've been born again. You've been made anew in Christ Jesus. You have a new nature. And what is that new nature like? It tells us in verse 24, righteousness and holiness of the truth. Then listen to this. Based upon that reality, that's not wishful thinking. You really have been made new in Christ if you're a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Based on that reality, Paul next gives a series of exhortations to live the new life to the fullest. And when you live the new way, then that will bring harmony to relationships, your relationships inside the body of Christ. Notice as we still are looking backwards to get the context right. Verses 25 through 30. Here the Holy Spirit is is urging those who have that new life in Christ to lay off some things and put on some things. Do you see those? Look at verse 25. Lay off what? 
lay off falsehood, right? All forms of lying and falsehood. And rather speak truth to one another. As he goes forward, look at verses 26 and 27. Put aside sinful and prolonged anger and replace it with a controlled spirit so the devil does not take advantage of you. That's verses 26 and 27. Keep looking in the passage. Replace any tendency towards stealing with uh, not just not stealing, but with hard work and generosity. That's verse 28. Um, Verse 29 and verse 30, which I think go together. Discard all unwholesome speech. By the way, that means that you don't just stop cuss words. You don't just stop using unclean words like the F word and the S word and all of that. It's more than that. It's that your mouth should never speak anything that is unedifying as well. Because if you do that, unclean words, cuss words, or unedifying words, you grieve the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. So our passage, we're looking at verses 31 and 32, comes at the end of these exhortations. And and honestly, um, this would extend into the first couple of verses of chapter 5. I think that that chapter 4 really should have been ended at the end of verse 2 of chapter 5 because it fits with the flow. But this passage here, verses 31, 32, and then chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, they act as a climax to this entire section. Verses 31 and 32 are to lift our attention to the greatest of all Christian attributes that we put on in the new life. The the kind, tender-hearted, forgiving agape love. The, the type of love which seeks not to get from other people. If you're always choosing your relationships with other people based upon what you're going to get from them, then you'll never practice this kind of love, right? This is the kind of love where you seek to what? Not get, but what? To give. To give. And here, and I would say this is the key, even in the midst of being hurt and of suffering pain and suffering loss, you are to be you are to give this kind of love. This kind of giving is not natural. It's not. If, if what you're hearing today, you're like, I don't think I can do that. Well, then join the club because neither can I. I cannot love like this unless God so operates on my heart. And, and, it, and indeed he has. He's given me a new nature in Christ, but I have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he works inside of me, right? For the true believer, this is possible. This is possible. It may not feel natural, But he wouldn't be exhorting us if it were not possible, okay? So here's our outline for today. God's counsel for dealing with hurt is simply this. First, lay off the old responses to hurt. When you used to get hurt as an unbeliever, there were certain things you used to do. There were certain responses you had, certain ways you thought. you got to lay those off. And secondly, put on the new responses to hurt. That's verse 32. Old responses to hurt lay them off. The new responses to hurt, verse 32, put them on. Okay, that's simple, isn't it? Let's look at verse 31 first. Verse 31, look at it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. I know that we tend to read through uh, verses with listen them quickly and we don't get as much out of them, but really uh, you need to take time to kind of think about them to really absorb what it is you're being asked to put off. Uh, I kind of look at verse 31 as a bad laundry list, <laughs> a bad laundry list. You know, in Paul's epistles, when he 
writes, and he's writing about laying something off or putting something on related to the old life before Christ and then the new life in Christ, it kind of helps to think of these as dirty garments that are no longer fit for wearing that you have to lay off. These filthy clothes are the attitudes and actions, the feelings and responses that must be discarded. Not in the dirty clothes basket, but in the trash can. (laughs) Or better yet, discarded in the furnace. Paul instructs, your old clothes from the old person and the old man are not washable. They're not even mendable. What's more, they stink. And so take them off, pick them up, and toss them away. Get rid of them entirely. Paul leaves no room for misunderstanding here. He uses the word all, pasa, every kind of bitterness and any form thereof, regardless of who has mistreated you, must be ripped off of the Christian and treated as a dirty, tattered garment, unworthy of the new life in Christ, and put away. That's very similar language to what Paul wrote back in verse 25 and even back to verse 22 where Paul told the believers there, lay aside falsehood, lay aside the old self with its practices. It has clothing imagery behind it. What follows then are six worthless pieces of clothing that are listed here in verse 31. Six worthless pieces of clothing. I'm going to kind of parade these six uglies in front of us. Six uglies. And once we see how ugly they are and how ugly they smell, how bad they smell and all of that, I think we'll be convinced we don't want to wear them. The first piece of clothing that Christians sometimes wear but really ought not to is bitterness. Picria, bitterness. What does that mean? That portrays an ill-tempered, irritable state of mind. A bitter person is one who is not sweet. (laughs) He's not kind. He's not enjoyable to be around. When you try to be around somebody that is bitter, they only have negative, prickly kind of vibes. When they talk, they tend to repel others. They don't draw them closer. And sometimes they're not even aware they're being bitter, but they are. Uh, If you try to reconcile yourself to a bitter person, they come up with only self-justifying comments. They give you that cold shoulder. Or worse, they lash out back at you, telling you how much you deserve pain. We used to call somebody like this a sourpuss back in, back in my day. But uh, this, honestly, has gone beyond being sour. The sour flavor has now degenerated into bitterness, and now the person holds a grudge. The person has a foul spirit inside of them. Bitterness keeps a person in a state of continuous hostility, continuous resentment. Now, I have to warn you that many people deny being bitter. You might be denying it right now and have more of it in your life than you realize. If you are not an amiable person, if your reactions are consistently negative to other people, if um, you tend to see the bad more than the good, if you would rather not even be around other people because they are a bunch of problems and trouble to deal with, well, bitterness may already be settling in your heart more than you realize. Ask some people who know you well. Humble yourself and say, be honest. Do I come across as bitter? Ask them, do I purr more as a kitten or do I roar more like a lion? Am I soft and huggable and cuddly or am I more like a cactus and I'm prickly? You may be surprised some of the answers you get. What is the source of bitterness in the life of a believer? Why does it get in there? Well, there are three ingredients to bitterness. I think uh, there may be others, but there are at least these three ingredients. Uh, Mostly what you get with first is you have selfish human pride. 
And that's kind of something that's there and we all have. And then you add in, you mix in the ingredient of someone hurts you, someone does wrong to you. And then you let time settle in there without dealing with that properly, and that's the prescription for bitterness in the soul. See, when we think that we deserve better in life, that's our pride. And then someone mistreats us, that's the hurt. And then it's not dealt with, that's the time. You mix all that together, and that's a recipe for bitterness in the soul. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15 um, caution, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Boy, bitterness can, can spread in a congregation and many be defiled. Bitterness can spread in the home. It can, it can move from one bitter root to another. Bitterness can happen in the home. That's why husbands are warned in Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be what? Embittered against them. Well, how does a husband become bitter against his wife in marriage? Well, it might go this way. A wife who now has little children at home and is trying to care for them realizes that she's overwhelmed with life. She's trying to care, take care of the little ones, and she had no idea how much work and, the, and constant work happened from being a mom at home. And then there's two little ones, and then there's three. And she begins to maybe not take care of her own looks as well and not keep the home as clean as it ought to be. And the husband goes out to work and he works hard all day and he comes home and he sees his wife doesn't look as, as good as she used to look and the home doesn't look as nice as it used to be and things are not organized as well. And now many of the events, they're not planned as well and all of that happens. And after a while, the husband begins to think to himself, you know, you know I, I deserve better than this. What happened to my old companion, that wife I enjoyed being around before? And rather than being a force for getting in there and helping her with her added trials and understanding what she's going through and helping her in her sanctification, the husband begins to feel trapped in the marriage. And he begins to see there's no way out. I mean, after all, he said, until death do us part. And so now, now he becomes embittered against her. She's the, she's the one at fault. Well, bitterness can also develop among Christians in church. Don't I deserve better when you drop your child off, maybe, and the teacher's not giving your child as much attention or whatever it is, and it's not being dealt with, and you don't like the way your, your child is being treated with another teacher or coach or some situation like that? Why hasn't the pastor visited our family this past year? I heard he visited so-and-so, and bitterness can develop against leadership. Or you might be in ministry, and you're like, I'm here every Sunday morning. I get here early. Why do other people not pull their weight? And it could be many, many things, right? I think there's more bitterness around than most people are willing to admit. And yet bitterness, according to the Spirit of God, is an ugly, foul-smelling garment that was part of our old life, and we're not to wear it at all, cast it away. Now, the second and the third pieces of ugly apparel are wrath and anger. And these two words are similar in the Greek word, and they're put together. When they're used side by side, I think they often mean the same thing, but when Paul uses them in a list and they're put side by side, it means that Paul probably is distinguishing them slightly. And I say slightly. The word wrath, thumos, refers to an emotional outburst of rage, whereas the word orge refers to an inner disposition of anger. Paul lists anger and wrath right after bitterness, I believe, because they are the ways that bitterness is usually expressed. You express your bitterness by either an emotional outburst or by seething inwardly. It, it hurts, this kind of anger and this kind of wrath hurts, and it hurts others. It hurts constructive communication. It breaks apart teamwork. 
If we were to flip to James chapter 1 and verse 20, it says the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If you were to flip back to the Proverbs and we had time there, it would say a fool is angry all the time. Avoid angry men. It would, uh, it would show how, how foolish it is to not gain self-control of your own spirit. When we are angry, when we ought not to be, it adds fuel to the fire. When people are disagreeing, it doesn't help. If you look back here in this own chapter, verse 27 says it actually gives the devil a foothold in your life. Why? Because the devil is an angry being. He's so frustrated. And of course, verse 26 indicates that godly anger is a legitimate emotion. Godly anger is not a sin. But even there it says, be angry and yet do not sin in that kind of an anger. Don't even hang on to that that long. Sinful anger, sinful anger that is aroused due to pride and jealousy and lust and hate, that kind of anger, all of it, must go. The fourth negative attribute in the list is the word clamor, crowgay. Every once in a while I say to myself, Tom, you don't want to be committing any crowgay today. What's that? That's mouthiness. That's when all of this anger and this, and this bitterness and stuff is mouthed and it just comes out and it makes a lot of clamor, a lot of loud noise. It, it even could mean a crying out, usually from distress of some kind. In this context, it means the person is, is he's crying out of passion against somebody else. It could even take on the eye of reproaching someone or, or you know, we would say we're chewing someone out. That would be crowd gay. Clamor is external. It comes out. It's uncontrolled, casting of words about. It's someone who's insensitive and focused only on what they're trying to accomplish. They don't care whether their words hurt or not. A crowd gay person, a clamorous person just says, you know, you know, quit being so sensitive. And they don't realize that their words are, are hurtful. Clamor occurs commonly in life. Crowd gay can happen on the way to church in the morning. <laughs> Maybe some of you uh, confessed crowd gay when we were going through our scripture reading and prayer this morning. It, it cl- Clamor is that quick, mouthy response to something gone wrong. Clamor occurs when two sisters are sparring verbally. Crowgay occurs when a dad is impatient at the kids and snaps at them. A person is clamorous when a wife speaks angrily to her God-given head, her husband. It occurs when a man at a sports event yells at the ref in disgust. It occurs everywhere. A woman pulls up at the bank, wants a check cashed, and the clerk won't do it. And, you know, they express anger and outrage. I know that because I used to work at a credit union. I remember that happening all the time. Everyone's always so nice and smiley until you say, I'm sorry, ma'am, I cannot cash that check for you. And all, and all of wrath breaks out. <laughs> it's bad. By the way, clamor can, ha- can happen electronically. Some people are cowards, and they hide behind their little email, and they say things through texting and other things they would never say face-to-face. Crowgay uh, is, I think, that, that loud and clanging gong or clanging cymbal mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, people that speak knowledge without love. Remember that? Clamor starts with an inner attitude of anger or irritation or discontentment, but it quickly gets broadcast. Clamor is that wild moment in the tongue when it's not tamed, as James 3 talks about. 
And it also is something that needs to be removed from our lives. Well, the fifth ugly piece of clothing is slander. Literally, the word here is blasphemia. This is slanderous or injurious speech. In English, when we direct this kind of speech towards God, we would translate it blasphemy. But when we speak this way towards people, we would call it slander. Slander is ill-intentioned speech designed to damage the reputation of another person. Slander originates in the heart of someone wanting to hurt someone else. It, it is calculated to hurt. Slander is, is not uncontrolled clamor. Instead, it's designed to defame somebody else. When slander comes, it comes in many forms. When church ladies are involved in gossip about another woman in their church, well, that's, that's slander. When, when men who are jealous of another man's successes make hurtful jokes totally unnecessary about that person, that's slander. Children can be slandered where their parents will say, you know, you stupid child in public, or don't you ever do anything good? Of course, the devil is very good at slandering. In fact, he's the chief slanderer. In fact, did you know the word devil means the slanderer? He's good at it. So if we're going to be Christ-like and undevilish-like, well, that garment has to go as well. The sixth and the last use, useless garment is malice. Malice, kakia, means badness or ill will. It encompasses bad feelings of every kind. It's kind of a, a general term. And, and the word all, Paul adds to that to, to emphasize again that there's no type of malice that's acceptable to our Lord. Malice is that complete bad-heartedness towards other people. And it lies at the core of the soul. And it is a, a root of the previously mentioned negative behaviors. Some people are so filled with malice, we actually refer to their actions as malicious. The hatred pops up in the lives of believers sometimes. Sometimes that hatred is expressed when we just quietly avoid someone we just don't like anymore. You have bad feelings towards them. Uh, other times it's more open, and we just simply say that we detest that person. Either way, it's malice and it has to go. Well, these are all dirty clothing. These are all unrepairable, and they all are to go. It's kind of hard to take a careful look at these filthy rags and realize that we still wear some of them at times. But we are not to treat them lightly. We can't afford that. Please remember, it is when you are hurt that you are most tempted to hurt back. Is that not true? When you are slandered, you're most tempted to what? To slander back. It's when you're, someone is angry with you where you're most tempted to lose the cool, right? But God has an entirely different wardrobe he wants us to learn to wear, to match the beautiful new person in Christ he's making you to be. And that's the second half of our message here in verse 32. Put on the new responses. Put on the new responses to hurt. Let me read that again. And, there's an and there in the Greek, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There is so much in this one verse. Paul is laying out three sweet responses we are to have to other people all the time, but especially to when we're hurt. These represent the new clothing. This is what you're to put on. This is what you're to wake up in the morning and say, this is what I want to put on today. I want to put on kindness. I want to put on tenderheartedness. 
I want to put on forgiveness. Let's look at the first one. First, put on the garment of kindness. Be kind to one another. Kindness means that regardless how someone else treats you, you're still going to show loving concern for other people and their affairs. And you're going to care for their affairs as much as you care for your own. You will still speak with gentleness when you're not spoken to with gentleness. When you're disrespected, you will still speak with respect. You will search for ways that you can build communication bridges with others and not blow them up. Somebody who is filled with kindness will not clamor against his neighbor. He will not remain embittered in heart against him. He will not respond with wrath and anger. Rather, kindness will be sweet. Kindness will be soothing. Kindness will be considerate of the situation someone else is going through. Kindness expresses patience and gentleness from a humble heart. It's no wonder that when Paul wrote the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, the first characteristics of love that he said is love is patient, love is kind. You might say that patience and kindness are the first responders of love. The first way that love will be shown is with patience and kindness. Kindness helps to overcome hurt because when you determine to be kind to others, it puts your soul in the right spirit. And now you're able to deal with hurt without hurting anybody else in return. You want to be kind toward them. When you are kind in response to someone, you shut down the temptation to be rough, to be curt, to be mean-spirited. Evil cannot grip your soul when you want to do well toward others. So be kind to one another. It's really more than a command. I mean, it is a command, but it's more than that. It's an invitation to live a better way. Be kind to one another. How many of our interpersonal issues would be wiped away? How many of our problems that we have between people and church would be solved if we just practiced that simple one another thing, right? Be kind to one another. People come in and, they're, and you ask them, do you think you were as kind to this person as you should have been? Now the confessions start coming. Well, if you just would respond with more kindness, if you would deal with your own heart issue, it would not escalate the problem. The problem isn't that we disbelieve that so-and-so was wrong to you if we're counseling you or trying to help you. It's that you made the problem worse by your response, you see. Well, let's look at the second, the second uh, clothing to put on. Paul also wants us to have a tender heart. Tenderheartedness goes along with kindness, right? But it looks at what's going on deep inside of you. Literally, did you know that tenderheartedness, heart, tenderheartedness means good bowels? <laughs> good bowels. Sounds kind of strange. But to the Greeks, the seat of emotion for them was not the heart, but was the bowels. It was deep-seated emotion, so to say. If you had compassion for someone, it went deep within you and it came out. And so you loved, you loved someone from deep within, inside of you. It's deep-down compassion. Tender-hearted people have real deep feelings of concern for another person. They're not cold. See, sometimes we think, I'm going to be loving towards another person. I'm just going to do the kind act. But we really aren't warm towards them. We really want to just do the outward action that shows that we're not all that bitter. But we really don't have good, warm feelings towards them. And we don't want to even have to try. They're just too mean. And so we just we want to do the kind thing and then get away from them as fast as we can. That doesn't really fulfill the command of love. 
We really are indifferent for them. We kind of hope someone else will pick up time and spend with them because we don't want to. We want to remain detached from the person. We don't really want to have compassion towards them. And so we're not really learning the kind of love that God had towards us. You know, God loves us. He sees the wickedness and all of that, and still he warmly embraces us in Christ. God wants us to learn how to have warm and soft, compassionate responses to people. Colossians 3, verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. When you're compassionate, you're focused on what you can do to help that other person and not to retaliate towards them. Compassion brings not just actions of love, but feelings of love as well. And that leads us to the third response we're to have, and that's forgiveness. Forgiveness. Charizomai is the term here in Greek. It literally means to give your favor towards someone, but in certain contexts, it means not to retaliate, to give back a blessing, and thus the idea of forgiveness emerges. If they wrong you, you're not to seek some way to get even with them, but you're to seek some way to give to them, to be a blessing to them, thus to forgive them. There are other New Testament terms that are used for forgiveness besides charizomai. In uh, Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer, when it talks about how we are to forgive, um, we ask for forgiveness as we have forgiven others. Or if you turn to Matthew 18 and you were to read about how many times should I forgive my brother, you know, up to, up to 70, the times 7, the Lord said. There he uses the term afiemi, and that term pictures uh, something that is bound up tightly, and then um, it's being held onto, and then the idea is that you no longer hold on to it, but you release it and you let it go. You could hold on to it, but you're told, you know, don't, don't hang on to that anymore. Let that go. Take the loss. Don't worry about it anymore in that sense. Uh, forgiveness never gives someone what they deserve. If they got what they deserve, we would never forgive them, right? Forgiveness is not what they deserve. Forgiveness is what we know they don't deserve, but we're going to give to them anyway because we were forgiven. Well, By the way, forgiveness is not pretending that you were not hurt by something. A lot of times people are hurt and then someone comes up and says, hey, did I hurt you? I'll forget about it. It's no big deal. We just act tough. That is not forgiveness. If you were hurt and you don't tell the person you were hurt, and I'm not talking about little petty things where you're hurt about every little thing. You got, you, there are some things you need to, to learn to overcome. But if something hurt you and you're thinking about it and thinking about it, you need to be reconciled. You need to go to that person and say, you know, what you did really hurt me. They may not even be aware. They may not even be aware. If you're thinking about it, if you're avoiding the person, if you have bad feelings towards them, if when someone preaches a sermon like this, their face and their name keeps coming up inside of you, you know you need to deal with that. You haven't really, you haven't really forgiven them yet, you know? So forgiveness is willing to take a loss. So you're not pretending it's no big deal. You're, you're, it was a big deal, but now you're willing to take the loss. You're willing to forgive them. That's forgiveness. The beautiful thing is that one who's forgiving drives out any remaining bitterness that might be in the corners of their soul. When you really forgive someone, then that bitterness and malice have no room anywhere in your soul, in your heart. And that brings you a ton of joy. That brings you all kinds of energy from the Holy Spirit of God. And that's why uh, God urges it from you. We don't, you don't want to be weighed down by not forgiving someone. By the way, Paul knew that Christians were capable of such wondrous love. And even in response to hurt, 
By God's power working in that new person, that inner man, as we call it, Paul knew that bitter people could turn into people as sweet as, as pumpkin pie. Uh, angry people could, could have affection for those who hurt them. People full of malice could learn to let go and could forgive. You might ask, yes, but how? How can I learn to forgive and love others like that? Oh, there are two very practical lessons in verse 32 for you as well about learning to love. Did you see them in there? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't ask the question how, but they're right there. And you can learn the power of love and forgiveness from what you read in verse 32. I don't want you to miss this. First, forgiveness and tenderheartedness and kindness are learned by first being forgiven yourself, right? Just as Christ has forgiven us, right? Just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Only when you have experienced the humbling effect of being forgiven for all of the wrongs you did against God will you learn to love others. Can you see that? The quality of having a forgiving spirit inside of you develops only after experiencing the transforming forgiveness of God. Unfortunately, some people come into churches like ours and they can define redemption and propitiation and justification. And they're really good in their theology, but they haven't been melted by the gospel yet. How can you still be hard-hearted when you believe Christ rescued you from the jaws of hell? And yet that's how some people are. They're astute in their theology, but not all that warm-hearted. That tells me they don't really understand the gospel all that well after all. Oh, this is, this is something you have to taste. We love, why? Because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. You have to know the love of God in Christ before you can ever think of giving out this kind of love to others. The power to convert malice to love is found in believing and receiving God's forgiveness for your, here it comes, wretched self. You wretched, filthy, inconsistent, disobedient person before God. They could have crushed like an ant and he chose to rescue you and me and forgive you and, and not just forgive you but set you high up and make you one of his own children and bless you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, how, can, how should you now respond to others? Obviously, with kindness, with love, right? To be forgiven of all of your sins, such a mountainous act of love, and to not respond with tenderheartedness means you've got a lot about the basics still to learn, the gospel. See, the Holy Spirit right here is teaching us that the way to prompt Love from believers is to remind them of the debt that they owed God, which has now been fully pardoned. From that personal experience of salvation, each believer should feel indebted to God and an overflowing amount of gratitude towards God. Brethren, in order to respond to the hurt that others bring to us well, we have to remember how God has treated us in Christ so kindly, so sweetly, so wonderfully, so generously. 
You know, um, Christ was sent into the world. Paul even goes on. We don't have time to look at verses 1 and 2, but if we did, Paul goes on and said, Jesus gave himself up for us. He offered his body as a sacrifice, and that act of love is, is the example we're to have. And, and as we keep our eyes on that, we're to grow in love. And that really is the, the second way that we can learn to love others, and that is by focusing on the life of Christ and imitating him. Just look at his example. That's the second way of learning love. Look at, look at his example. What do you do when you gaze into the Scriptures and you read about the most perfect pe person ever to live, Jesus Christ? When you read about how He treated the disciples and what His plan of salvation was for you? You, you go to the Bible and you study it carefully. What do you read? You read of love. You read of an immense act of love. You see Jesus in His stellar example and, and, and His matchless example of love. You see that pattern before your eyes, right? And, and you need to do more than just say, well, yeah, Jesus loved me, and that's what it says in the Bible. You need to study it. You need to study it and, and understand it and think about it. And, and anybody can say they understand the gospel, then take their eyes off of Jesus, go out into their week and go out into their day and, and let the example of Jesus fall from their eyes and now go back to responding the same way that we always responded as an unbeliever, right? If you want to grow in love, you have to keep the example of Christ before your eyes always. Always be thinking, what would Jesus do? How did he live? How did he respond? And those who followed him as good examples of Christian love, what did they do? Keep your eyes on those in the church that are imitating this kind of love and model yourself after them. We need the example of other believers. It's not simple knowledge, yes, Jesus loved me, that will help us to learn to love this way, but it is purposefully setting the example of Christ before our eyes so we're always thinking about him and always have him before us. Then we will learn to live the Christian life and love the way we should. You know, when we take our eyes off of Christ, we can stumble and fall and act carnally like anybody else. And that is why you must be constantly in the word. Not to learn something new. Yeah, there's new things in there you haven't learned. But to learn something old that you didn't learn as well as you should have. And most of the things you're going to learn... As you grow more and more in Christ are things you've been taught and heard sermons on before and you need to hear it again because you need to practice it better. And I do too. Let your faith feed on the love of God found in the Scriptures. Be in the Scriptures. Memorize the Scriptures. Think on the Scriptures for they bring you the greatest example of love you'll ever find anywhere. If you remain humbled by Christ's forgiveness of you and if you stay focused on Jesus Christ and His example... God will change the way you used to respond to hurts. And in the new year, 2020, he will do acts of love through you that you didn't think were possible. Because it's not possible by you. It's possible by the Spirit of Christ in you. Amen? Amen. We're going to have our baptismal service here in a minute. But would you bow with me and we'll just pray that God will let these words sink in our hearts. Almighty God, thank you for giving us the privilege of expositing your word and hearing very carefully what your word says. Minister to it. Uh, minister it to our souls, we pray. Uh, Father God, forgive us of our past sins. Humble our hearts. Help us to be contrite. Help us to be honest about the ugliness inside. Help us to find a brother or sister in which to confess our sins outwardly to. Help us, Father God, to get reconciled with others we need to be reconciled with. 
Oh, Lord God, help us to put uh, uh, control over our mouth that we may have no clamor and slander. And, Lord, may we love the way Jesus Christ has loved us. We pray it for Christ's sake and the building of his kingdom. Amen.